Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's moderator from Men's Journal, Charles Thorpe. Hey guys, I'm really excited to get these guys up here as soon as possible, so let's just check out the trailer for Jeremiah Tower, The Last Magnificent, and we'll get into it. When there's something wonderful to be done, if you're not right there with me, then get out of the way. Most people would not know who Jeremiah Tower is. He was on the front of magazines. He was known all over Europe. We hadn't seen his kind before. He was a natural. A superstar. And this was a chef. He certainly is considered a father of the American cuisine. We should know who changed the world. We should know their names. 1972, Jeremiah Tower walks into Chez Panisse. It was Alice Waters' little dream restaurant. The first thing they did is celebrate local ingredients. I wrote the menu, the California Regional Dinner. It exploded. Complete reevaluation of not just American food and ingredients, but food. Then all hell broke loose, you know. Alice showed me the first book, the Japanese cookbook, and she had taken all the dinners I had dreamed up, written the menus for, and cooked, and said that she did it. I'm not coming back. He became something bigger. Jeremiah at Stars defined what a modern American restaurant could be. It was, at one point, arguably the best in the world. It was just odd that he burned so bright and then just disappeared. He never made contact again. I don't even think any of us knew for sure what had happened. All of a sudden, there was a tweet from the New York Times saying Jeremiah Tower announced his new chef at Tavern on the Green. My first reaction was, holy. Here's a guy who's been out of the profession for 15 years. Just seemed like something you'd see in a movie. He's got ranks of critics waiting to ambush him. Look at that. That's inexcusable. He has no clue what he's doing. These look tired. They're horrible. There's clearly unfinished business. I think that it's going to be a home run. <sighs> this will never work. If anything is worth doing, it's worth doing in style and on your own terms and nobody else's. It's one heck of a trailer right there. So guys, help me introduce uh, director Lydia Tanaglia and uh, executive producer Anthony Bourdain. Keep it going for them, keep it going. Wait till they get to their chairs. The applause has to cover the chair break. Guys, congratulations, it's so great to have you up here. Um, Lydia, I wanna start with you. I just wanna get into how you guys, I think it will help the audience, how you guys start working together, the creative, the creative collaboration. So how do you- On uh, this film or? On the, uh, just we, in general, I mean, in general. We've been you guys worked together for a while. That's a long yeah. story. That's a long story, yeah. It's a little a summary, just, let's get the relationship going. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, we've been working together for 17 years. Um, I met Tony when he was still executive chef at Leal Restaurant. He had uh, written Kitchen Confidential and I heard he was gonna write another book called Cook's Tour. So I called him, I went to the restaurant, we met, we talked, I said, would you ever consider turning that into a television series? He said, I don't care, you know, whatever. <laughs> and so we shot a 10 minute demo at Leal where he just talked about what it would be like for him to travel and see the world. So it was all just kind of conjecture. And um, we turned that into a 
23-part series for the Food Network called The Cook's Tour. And then we moved on to do No Reservations for eight years on Travel Channel, and now we're on Parts Unknown on CNN. So it's been a long ride together and um, kind of fun, yeah. <laughs> I would say. Uh, I've pretty much never made any TV, certainly not any TV that I'm proud of with anybody else. Yeah. I mean, I'd just love to hear what, why it works, how you guys work together so well. Well, as uh, Lydia will be the first to tell you, in the beginning, uh, I really sucked. I mean, I had no understanding of how to make television. I resented the whole medium. I was working for Food Network, which surprised me because uh, I remember they said, well, we have a meeting with Food Network. I said, why would they ever hire me? I've done nothing but be viciously cruel to their entire stable <laughs> of stars. Uh, I didn't bother to shave, I think, or brush my teeth for that meeting because I was so sure it was going to go bad. Uh, but somehow I found myself uh, in Tokyo for the first episode, and it came as a rude surprise to me that I would have to actually... They, they asked me at one point, they said, look at the camera and say, where are we, and why are you here, and what do you expect to find? And I was like, you, you expect me to talk? I, I somehow thought that I would be wandering around <laughs> investigating for this book, and they would shoot me from over the shoulder or something. I guess it started when, for me... We were in Vietnam, which was the second series of shows we were doing. We, we used to shoot like six or eight at a, in, in a go, three or four different countries. So I found myself in Vietnam feeling not particularly uh, good, laying on my bed in this really shitty hotel with a, with a, uh, a ceiling fan going slowly round and round. And, Chris, it sounds like uh, some sort of like French movie or something like that, well, black and white. Lyd Lydia's husband came in with the camera, said, let's go shoot. And I said, dude, look, <laughs> Saigon, shit. And we just started a riff on Apocalypse Now. And, and over the next few weeks, we realized, uh, or I did, that, well, you know, television actually can be fun and a creative enterprise, especially when you don't give a shit about the, you know, the, the customer, really. Great message, I love that. Um, now what about Jeremiah Tower? He, I mean, he's such, I mean, if you did have a shot every time somebody said charming in this movie, I think you get fairly drunk by halfway through. I mean, he's a charmer, he's such a fascinating figure. What, what made the documentary happen? I mean, yeah, I mean, it? Tony read Jeremiah's memoir, it was called California Dish. It's actually been re-released, it's called Start the Fire. It's a fantastic read. And he um, gave me the book and when I read it I, it, it, I was kind of startled by the fact that having worked in and around food television for almost 17 years now, I had heard of all the other players in that story except for the guy who wrote the book. And, you know, I thought that was very curious. Like, who is this guy? Clearly he had an amazing impact on the culinary landscape of the United States, on the restaurant scene, on the way we eat, where we eat, how we eat yet I'd never even heard his name. So that was kind of the starting point, I think, for the whole documentary pursuit, just to figure out, you know, where is he? Why haven't we heard of him? Why haven't more people heard of him? And, and just, yeah, the, quite frankly, there was a little bit of a mystery of where is he now? Because um, he was no longer living in San Francisco where he made his bones. He was, uh, we found him in a small town in Mexico somewhere. And, and that was kind of the beginning, so. I mean, my, my initial interest was I, I, I'd been hearing of him. Uh, I read the book and I realized how much of the food in my own career had been influenced by his work without me ever realizing it. 
I'd heard the name spoken admiringly. Um, and I was aware of the sort of legend of American, new American cuisine and California cuisine. And here in this book is documentary evidence of menus before Jeremiah, menus after Jeremiah. Uh, he makes a very compelling case, as do the people who speak about him in the film. So initially, maybe the motivation came from kind of a bad place. Yeah. I was angry. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought it's really outrageous that this guy has been, you know, written out of history and erased from, from, the, from the picture, from, you know, especially given how, how important, I mean, really vitally important his role was. Um, so originally I was pissed off and I was looking to sort of set the record straight. And that's a bad reason to make a film or to tell a story when you have an agenda. But of course, as Lydia started, uh, we both started interviewing him and as Lydia started to put together the film and do the research and I saw it was coming back, it became a much more uh, nuanced and much more interesting story um, about you know, a time, a place, a, a group of people. Uh, and of course, one very, very strange and fascinating and difficult and brilliant man. I mean, talking about the people that you have referencing him in the film, I think we have a couple clips. So let's start with the first one. And actually, Martha Stewart, I think, makes an appearance in this first clip. Yeah. Most people would not know who Jeremiah Tower is. And sadly, he certainly is considered, in my book anyway, a father of the American cuisine. During the 80s and early 90s, Jeremiah Tower was one of the major names in this country. He was on the front of magazines. He was known all over Europe. The very first thing I heard about after I heard about Chez Panisse was Jeremiah Tower. He was the darling, the glamour puss, the sexy guy, the smart guy, and the innovative chef that became something that was what everyone wanted to know about. In the 70s, Alice Waters opened Chez Panisse. You cannot begin to understand the impact on the food landscape. 1972, Jeremiah Tower walks into Chez Panisse. Everyone reluctantly or not have to agree that he put the place on the map. Jeremiah Tower's menus made Chez Panisse the place that everybody wanted to go. A complete reevaluation of, of not just American food and ingredients, but food. Now, that is the beginning of the film. You can see that anger that you're talking about, Anthony, from everybody who's speaking. You know, why do, why do people not know about this guy? I mean, when did the movie take a twist that maybe you didn't expect to happen as far as another part of the story unfolding? Maybe, Lydia, you can talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I think there were a lot of twists in making the film. Uh, you know, when, when we first started out, it, it was sort of very logically broken down, this three, very neat three-act structure of exploring his childhood. There was all these incredible formative memories that he had traveling around the world. His parents, he sort of came from moneyed neglect in that, you know, his parents traveled him everywhere and, you know, they, he sort of lived a life of luxury and fine hotels, but he was essentially, you know, he was like emotionally abandoned. His mother was an alcoholic, his father was a jerk. Um, so he was kind of left to his own devices very early on. So that was sort of the childhood exploration of his formative memories. He spent a lot of time in and around kitchens as a child in hotels and on ships. And then the second act was really Chez Panisse when he really kind of steps into Alice Waters' world for the first time in 1971. Never trained as a chef, just needed a job. 
walked in there. And then Act Three was really stars, like his really his grand opus, um, which he built to great heights, and then it crumbled to the ground. At one point, when we thought we were finished shooting the whole project, um, he mysteriously disappears and reemerges in New York, and he takes on this job at Tavern on the Green as the executive chef. This was in uh, 2015. <laughs> and it was it just kind of like fucked up the whole structure. So you guys film. didn't see that coming. He didn't broadcast no, to you at all. It no. was like, you oh, know, wow. suddenly Lydia was all excited. It's well, first <laughs> devastated because the film was done. We had a last shot in mind, you know, yeah. Jeremiah disappears off and walking into the sunset, yeah. Now he's at the biggest, you know, <laughs> highest volume goat rodeo restaurant, in, you know, in Forest New York. Trail. And it's potentially a whole other film, a whole other story. And Lydia's like, what do I do? And I'm like, don't worry, this is going to be over real quick. <laughs> um, but but I, I think one of the things that makes this, that surprised us both, it certainly surprised me, was here you have a story about a, 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 a boy, uh, a sexually abused boy, a boy who grows up alone, absolutely alone in these, you know, grand luxury hotels all over the world at ocean liners who talks about it still as if these were wonderful things wonderful form good times <laughs> made me who I am today really has you know uh, the, the writer John Birdsall refers to Jeremiah Towers invincible armor of pleasure mm. and the way in which uh, these tangible things like uh, uh, First-class service, uh, you know, Baccarat crystal, properly folded napkin, uh, you know, a well-served rack of lamb, uh, a menu. How the the way in which these things very effectively seem to protect this lost boy um, was both interesting and and difficult because very hard man interview to get him to say that hurt. Yeah. I I was lonely. My childhood was not fully satisfying. He, that's not the way he describes events. Yeah. Also, another feature that I, I find is a clip of uh, Ruth Reichel talking that captures very much the effect of, she describes Jeremiah Tower back in the early 70s walking into a room. And she said, it was like everyone else in the room was what gray, and he was golden. <laughs> and he was really the first fuckable chef. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody wanted to fuck him, men and women alike. And, and many might well have. Um, he was not immune to the fact that he was charming and attractive. And uh, uh, that, too, uh, was both a game changer as far as the, the role of the celebrity chef in society and, and very, very unusual. He was the first chef in America who people wanted to see in the dining room. Before that, we were backstairs help. You know, it's like we were the service personnel. You were not happy at Stars if you didn't get some face time with Jeremiah, who was this glamorous figure you wanted to see in the dining room. You wanted his opinion. You wanted to hear what he thought you should eat. That had not occurred in American fine dining before. Yeah. Lydia, I want to get. Uh Press on a note that Anthony just said there. You know, it's hard to get him to delve deeper. He's just, he's a charming guy. He's a he's a happy-go-lucky guy. I mean, you know, the stuff with Alice Waters and those restaurants, those those tough times. It, it seems like it'd be hard to get him to open up with that and actually share the darker. I mean, was that hard for you? Was that rough to get get yeah. that out of him? 
Yeah, I mean, Tony has called me this before, and Jeremiah actually called me this several times, but he said, you're like a bitch with a bone. <laughs> and so I just never gave up. I think there was moments where he really wanted to just push me away, and he did, um, verbally, and just would stop communicating. And, you know, I, I think I, um, I was just very persistent in a, in a, in a, in a way that was not... Um, uh, obnoxious, you know, that I, I really just wanted to get to the heart of of his story. And very early on, I think, you know, here's someone who's controlled his public image his entire career. You know, he gave me the 10 photographs I was allowed to look at, and here's the 10 people you're allowed to talk to, and these two may talk negatively about me, so you can talk to them. And it was, he gave me this whole array, and I was, and I, I just had this heart to heart with him, and I said, I'm not going to do a puff piece about your life. I'm not interested in that. We're making a feature documentary. It really has to plumb the depths. And if you're not willing to go there, we can't do it. Mm. And I, I think it was just reiterating that message over and over again. And then I think as he saw me really dig deep and like pull up this you know, amazing archival material from his life and talk to certain people, and he started to back away from that control. And I, I, it, it, it sort of happened fairly late in the process but yeah, I think he was he finally relinquished he relinquished that sense of I need to control the message and um, we just we pushed forward together we definitely had major ups and downs when he took the tavern job he pretty much kicked me out of the kitchen entirely and then you know I just I kept going up there and I was sort of hovering around and you know he finally like slowly let me back in so it was definitely a process. Yeah, I think we have some more of that archival uh, photos so with that in the next clip, yeah. As a cook, he was a creator and a leader. But as an overall package, he was someone that so thoroughly understood and probably still understands the nature of the exchange between the restaurant and the customer. He knew every socialite in San Francisco. Everybody who was somebody who came to San Francisco had to go to Stars and Jeremiah knew all of them. The great socialite Denise Hale was throwing incredible parties there. I mean, very highfalutin, fancy dinner parties, night after night after night. But of course, she brought in a large amount of business because if Denise was there every night, everybody else had to be there every night. Countess of Yugoslavia, Baryshnikov, Sofia Loren there, Pavarotti was there, all the people in the opera world. A lot of the politicians would come over from City Hall or the chief of police, and they would be there at eight or nine in the morning having a beer. Gorbachev, I cooked dinner for Gorbachev. Run DMC and the Beastie Boys and their entourage come in and, and had everybody just going crazy. We didn't mind having punk rockers there. We didn't mind having spiked-haired people there. We didn't mind having, you know, the elite of the elite there because everybody had their position in the restaurant. You know, in the Oceana, you always had first class and cabin class. The thing about stars, it was just like that. The socialites could look around and go, oh, look at I'm mingling with regular people. And these edgy people could go, oh, look, I'm as comfortable in this environment as anybody else is. It mattered who else was there, what, what might be happening, what might happen. The restaurant as seen 
great. So great. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. People know more about this guy. I mean, what, what does Jeremiah think about the final product and how it's come together and, and getting his message out there again? Now new articles are being written. He's being acclaimed again. What's that process like for him? Yeah, I mean, when he saw the film, he hadn't seen the film until about two days before it premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival. And I rented a, a theater, and he and I went and screened the film together for the first time. And I think it was a, quite shocking for him. I, I, you know, it was his really first, um, his first experience of it. And, and uh, he was rather speechless and, and a little rattled. I think, um, because, you know, people are psychoanalyzing his life and his highs and his lows and everything in between, um, talking about his sexuality. And we left there, we proceeded to march into a bar where he got completely shit-faced, <laughs> like totally shit-faced. And I, you know, had to kind of scoop him up and put him in a cab. And I didn't hear from him for two days. And then finally, you know, I think he... Um, it settled and he was able to just take it in and then appreciate it for, for what it was, which is really the story of his life. Anthony, I'm sure you were able to help him through that, being somebody who's been on the screen a few times and uh, shared his story a few times. Well, look, he's very good at, he's very good at handling himself publicly. I mean, he, he supported the film. He came out, did a lot of panels and discussions and radio interviews, a lot of them with me. So he's very comfortable as an interview subject, um, I like to think that he's pleased. I, I know he's pleased and, and surprised that to have this reevaluation of his career. Uh, at very least, the importance, uh, you know, his actual role in the American food revolution, which I have to stress, he was completely written out of. Yeah. Um, you know, not just by the initial protagonist, but by the entire food right, almost the entire food writing community for re reasons of access, for reasons of laziness. You know, if you tell a bullshit story long enough, you have to stick with it. And I think that kind of happened. Yeah. Um, if the person who's not around, you know, if, if you have to choose between the person who's not around to write a story, and the person who's around, you're gonna, you're gonna write the story that, that's friendly to the person who's still around, who's gonna give you quotes and access and kitchen tours and you know, that sort of thing. So I, I, I think this, this, this machine and, and inertia sort of slowly over time uh, wrote him out and, and then he became an inconvenient man in the sense that here was a guy saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, I, I, this is what I did. It's like, oh, shut up, man. You know, that's, that's, not, that's not the way, that's not the creation story that, that we believe now. Right. And, and it, it's shocking, you know, to see good, you know, well-respected journalists, uh, how truly wretched and, and uh, disingenuous, knowingly disingenuous, and lazy their work was on this subject, on this area. I'm thinking of a Leslie Stahl 60 Minutes piece in particular that was just breathtaking in its dishonesty and stupidity and credulousness. And uh, uh, you could see, you know, this sort of thing really to get to pissed you. me off. Yeah. Yeah. Lydia, I mean, 
again, you're you're talking about this guy's legacy as well, and then you have the Tavern on the Green thing going on. I'm sure you're wondering how to frame that event in his life with all the success that he's had before and all the great things that he's done for California cuisine, all the things that he's founded. Um, how did you, how do you treat that section of the film, and, and how do you decide to frame that? Yeah, I mean, it was really challenging because stylistically, we went from a very produced, you know, there's interviews, recreations, archival footage type of storytelling to something that actually just pivoted into a follow doc verite style with a lot of unknowns to it. So he started the job in November, the very beginning of November. I followed him for as much as I could in November. He kicked me out of the kitchen in December. And then I was able to come back in January and February. So it was a three month uh, process of filming him, just following, wondering where the story was going to go. I think what was clear pretty pretty early on. <laughs> and I, call, I called him, I'm like, he's going to turn it around. I know he is. It's going to be a triumphant ending. No. <laughs> and he was like, no. He's doomed. I'm like, you're wrong. It's going to be great. It's going to be this rose that we put at the top of this thing. And he's like, no. Don't get your hopes up. It's gonna. It's not gonna work out. Yeah. And and you could then you could see once I came back in in January, you could see there was cracks. What does Jeremiah say that he's a he's a, a big fan of the the slim chance? Is yeah. it? Yeah. He, he he, you know, I mean, he knew that it was an unrealistic expectation. I mean, the man is how old? He's seventy three. Se first of all, seventy. To, to in your 70s, look, to in your 50s, go back in the, go back in the kitchen. Even, in, the, even in your 40s, to go back into the kitchen after a break of, those, of that many years. Um, it is a young person's game. It's incredibly stressful to do it at, at a place like Tavernist, high-volume tourist barn. Um, <laughs> it's a known legendary chef killer. It's crushed younger... Uh, uh, you know, more, you know, more recently employed <laughs> chefs. It was a very romantic uh, venture on his part. Yeah. I think we have a clip of actually yeah. of that section we can show right now. The beast, the religion of any restaurant is consistency. The food has to be the same every single time. It has to be as good. That requires eternal vigilance, meaning the ability to stand in that incredibly busy kitchen with hundreds of meals going out all around you, and you're aware of every plate. You're looking at eyes in the back of your head. I detect a lamb chop that's not right. Tavern on the green? We're talking thousands of meals. It's impossible to make great food when you're doing the, those kinds of numbers. It's a chef killer. You're burning that. You think you're going to use that? What's it for? This is for the salvage. Anything from this that I can salvage? No. You've burned it. I told you to keep your own. You've burned it. Well, you know, when you run such a big restaurant, you need a lot of people to do their job just right. How could it be on that station and have no clue what he's doing? I, 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 actually, I don't, I don't know. 
the chef de cuisine had actually let him crash and burn, meaning he was put on a station, not shown how to do it, uh, didn't know what he was doing. And that's inexcusable. I will say, it's a great place to have a drink uh, with your family if you need to after the theater. But I mean, you say it so well. I mean, I think it's one of those situations where um, it's, it's a difficult beast, and it seemed a bit cathartic for Jeremiah to talk about his experience with the owners. I mean, he, he definitely, he lets loose in, I think in he the was film. actively, I mean, this was contemporaneous films as it was happening. I don't think it was cathartic. I think it was, he was genuinely angry and hurt and disappointed and, uh, you know, reality was setting in. I mean, um, you know, Jeremiah has always been about glamour, about fabulousness. Uh, Tavern on the Green is a place, you know, if you're from Iowa and you come to New York and you build your own life and you make new friends, that's where you bring your, you know, your mom when she comes to town or your grandmother because you could be, A, she'll like it, B, you won't see anybody there who knows you. <laughs> um, Lydia, I mean, what was it like for you to sort of cap it off like that, but also to keep the conversation with him going? I mean, did, did you want to do something after that? Did you want to film more with him after that experience? Yeah, I mean, in all honesty, the three months we shot there could have been a film in and of itself. I mean, I had, fil I had material with him inside Tavern, outside Tavern. It, it really was its own story. And everything we captured there that, that's in the film was happening in real time. So that whole unraveling that happens at the end and his, as you described it, as sort of cathartic, I would call it angry, vitriolic, you know, um, expression of his experience all happened in real time. None of that was, you know, produced after the fact. I, I knew it was all falling apart and I went up there and I planted a camera in the corner of his small apartment and I just sat there as he was making his way through all these texts and phone calls as he realized, I think, that he had lost his job. Um, you know, he had had an angry tirade, left the restaurant, and then they basically said, we're done with you. So I was watching that whole thing unfold. and. You know, it was it was pretty extraordinary. I think he's just sort of got to a point, and I think it also just re reflects maybe the trust he had in me at that moment because he just let it go and he kind of, you know, expressed his anger in all of its glory. Um, and so it's very dramatic, I think, for the purposes of the film. Um, r really, structurally, the tavern story at the end just really served as an a backdrop to tell the the ending of the star's story. So we sort of use certain moments in Tavern as these sort of punctuation beats to tell why and how his own empire crumbled, you know, so so badly in in the late nineties. So that's kind of it was it was a delivery device to tell this other ending. Well, it's not a big downer. Jeremiah's okay. Yeah, he's got he's a great okay. memoir. No, he's got, a, you know, great he's got a great film out here. I yeah. mean, what's he up to next? And what's, what's he's going He's writing on? more he's books. Very vital, yeah. Uh, he's uh, talking about opening a tiny little restaurant with uh, Mario Batali on the Amalfi Coast. Um, which <laughs> Another man who's a charmer. Him. There we go. There's the two of them together, I feel like, will be it. I think uh, Jeremiah will, uh, will do okay. <laughs> yeah. 
Back in Mexico, he's very happy. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, Batali is one of those guys who speaks so fondly of him. I mean, he was probably a pretty early get as far as one of the guys that would speak about his effect because of his star's experience. It wasn't hard getting chefs to talk about uh, Jeremiah Tower. I mean, the, the respect within the industry has always been huge. I mean, we're talking about, you know, a legendary, a legendary figure. You know, so Jeremiah Tower walks into a restaurant, the kitchen is going to freak. It's going to be red alert, <laughs> you know, all hands on board. Much like Anthony Bourdain if he walks <laughs> in. <the kitchen. laughs> yeah. Bigger by far. I mean, this, this was really uh, an important figure who, who really changed the way menus look. Every menu now attributes, you know, uh, ingredients, uh, you know, the source of the ingredients, usually to American producers. This was unthinkable before Jeremiah. Um, the seasonality, the regional uh, aspect, um, as well as his, his love of the classics. I mean, Jeremiah's in many ways not a guy, he's not a 21st or even a 20th century man, he's a 19th century man. If you guys had to cast a biopic with Jeremiah, I mean, he's he's such a great personality. But who who would you put in that role? Do you guys know? Do you option those uh, rights? That's tough. And I mean, an actor who's really, I think you'd have to go back in yeah. time, be, uh, go back some, Definitely. you know, someone with who's uh, equally attractive to men and women. <laughs> I, I I think that would be really really important. Uh, you know, like a Montgomery Clift or. Okay. Uh, Someone like that. I mean, um, somebody really, an extraordinary actor with extraordinary uh, qualities, unlike, you know, just about everybody around them. I mean, I, I can't think of anybody I've had. Maybe Mont a taller Montgomery Clift. <laughs> he definitely go. had that mid-Atlantic accent because he, although he was born in the States, his family moved to uh, Australia when he was a boy, and he spent some time there and then they moved to England, and then he moved back to the States, so he always retained this sort of amalgam of all those places. His, his accent is really pretty magnificent, so. So what he, memoir? He's such a, a European, uh, he's European in so many ways uh, <laughs> yeah. that all actors I can think of, you know, unfortunately, I'm thinking of German, uh, Italian, and French actors, no one with that kind of mid-continental English play well, accent. Play well. I don't think so. <laughs> Uh, what memoirs are you guys reading now? What's the next doc? Are you guys, I mean, obviously you guys are working on TV together still, so what's, what's next for the collaboration? Yeah, we're working on a project uh, based on a book by David Moranis called Once in a Great City. Um, it's a four-part uh, limited-run docuseries for CNN based on that book, and it really explores Detroit during 1961 to 64 when that city was really sort of... Um, kind of at this incredible bubble of greatness and had so much promise and hope. So that's going to be out uh, next year that Tony's executive producer runs. Yep. I think people would be upset if I didn't ask you where you're traveling to next, Tony. Uh, what's um, coming up? I can't say where I'm going to next, but it's a domestic show and um, I'm really very excited about it. Okay, where do you like the best last then? Where, where's, where's a great place for us to book a ticket to? To go to, um, we're all look, going after this. Look, I'm a big fan of. I mean, places that you wouldn't think necessary. I mean, look, I love Rome, and I'm there a lot. Okay, <laughs> but this is the surprise that Rome is great. Where's great that you might not think is great? Beirut is incredible. Beirut is a place everybody should go. 
uh, Oman, the country of Oman, is, is, was an extraordinary experience for me. Um, Uruguay is pretty cool. Um, these were all really, really, really pleasant surprises. And to the extent that we can travel in uh, Iran, that, that was a, a really revelatory, uh, life-changing experience for me as well. To see what, what it's like to, to just walk the streets of Tehran and meet ordinary people. We know what the government's like. You know, we, we have a pretty good idea. Uh, the evidence is in the newspapers uh, every day. Um, and in their own statements um, and in their activities. But the people are amazing and the society within Iran itself was absolutely shocking to me. The food is great. Um, I, I, would, I, would, I would say, you know, Beirut and Iran in the first place because if, if we ever needed to look uh, at the, the Muslim world in a way um, likely to, 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 get, to cause, make us empathetic or to enlarge our understanding, uh, this can only be a good thing. Well said. Well, I think we have some uh, questions out in the audience. Yeah, exactly. You can applaud that 100%. Yeah. Um, as a documentary filmmaker, I know your, your last goal was probably to influence the subject in any way. Um, and it sounded like you had a, a complete beginning, middle, and end for your movie. And all of a sudden, there is this sort of resurgence. Uh, how much influence or responsibility do you think that sort of looking at the first part of his life might have inspired him to take another bite at the apple? Completely. I, okay. think, <laughs> I mean, I, from my perspective, I think he took that tavern job because he knew I was documenting his life. And I think there was an impulse there to say, hold on a second, I don't want people seeing me shuffling along on a beach in Mexico somewhere. So I think he, I think that there was a very, very, I personally think he took that job specifically for that reason. While he will say, I thought the filming was over. I, I no, I think he knew very well that I would bite on that apple. And I did, and although he made a lot of protestations you know, while I tried to shoot him there, he, he let me in, in a big way. So I would say that the film definitely influenced him taking that job. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, has the, uh, the Tavern on the Green sequence in the film uh, helped you to, to change the rhythms, to speed them up uh, because of all that chaos in the kitchens that you described? Yeah, I mean, the rhythm of the film definitely took a turn at that point. As, as I was describing earlier, it was, it was a very structured, produced piece up until that point. And the one last thing we had to shoot was Jeremiah in Mexico, which would have also been, I think, very dreamy in nature. And then once he took that job, um, the, just stylistically, aesthetically, the shooting changed, the, you know, just the the conceit of shooting changed because I was now following him around in a story that I really had no idea where it was going. And I, there was certainly, I, I felt a lot of nausea at that point because <laughs> I'm like, this fucking film is over. Like, why am I shooting, you know? But, um, you know, you could see, what it was extraordinary as Tony mentioned earlier was you could see this man at the age of 73 years old just roll up his sleeves 
and get to work. So it was a very contemporary example of, you know, what he was so capable of doing very early on, having no culinary training at all. He stepped into a kitchen in 1971 at Chez Panisse, and he took everything he had learned as a kid in all of his travels, and he had studied cookbooks, and he just got to work. And you could see the same vision at play. And so it, there was an excitement there, I, I think, too. And um, people feel it when they're watching the film that there's a pivot point at, the, at that point. What was the biggest influence that he had on you? Well, I was cooking a lot of food that was influenced by him that I had no idea. I mean, I was doing a, a, a I remember his lobster gazpacho for, for years without any idea that it had come from him. Just it was, you know, a, a, a chef who might have worked with Jeremiah or who lifted it from his cookbook, had uh, cooked it for a chef who then worked in a kitchen I worked in. I picked it up from him, took it elsewhere. Um, a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of the, the menus that I would write uh, as a chef and as a cook, you know, I'd be, you know, suddenly it was Jameson Farms lamb and, uh, you know, I'd attribute the ingredients to local New York sources or wherever I was cooking. Um, I plated food to a great extent, uh, like uh, some of his presentations without ever knowing it was his. Um, the, his his uh, sort of uh, reliance or his sort of accent of uh, quickly grilled food um, was something that was uh, I probably was also influenced by him. Um, you know, I realized one of the chefs who I looked up to very, very much early in my career and took a lot from was basically ripping this guy off left and right. I just didn't know it at the time. I thought, wow, this guy's a really great cook and a brilliant innovator. Little did I know until years later, this is all Jeremiah's food. Uh, in terms of the sort of celebrity aspect, do you have any similarities that you see with uh, yourself and, and Jeremiah? No, at all, none, because uh, understand, Jeremiah was a brilliant chef, cook, and culinary innovator who changed the entire landscape of cooking. Who Also, he was the chef at uh, at least two very successful restaurants. These are claims I can never make for myself. Um, you know my name because of books that I wrote, maybe, or TV shows that I made. Uh, my long 30-year career in the restaurant business was not a particularly distinguished one. Most of the restaurants I work for are closed now. I sell them, uh, I often helped in that process, um, <laughs> to be honest. Um, the times in my career that I thought I was a creative genius ended badly for everybody. I changed jobs an average of once a year. Um, I created, never in my life did I create a single dish that you know people speak of still in hushed tones. So, uh, no, I don't see any similarity at all other than we both spent a lot of time in the kitchen and both wrote books. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a powerful connection. I mean, I... I'm very good friends with a lot of chefs whose careers are completely different than my own, who lived uh, very different lives, had very different priorities and very higher standards. Um, we, we relate because we, you know, anytime, you know, it, it, you're going to share something fundamental. If you spent 30 years living in a submarine, 
even if it was a really shitty submarine, it's still a submarine. You're going to have something in common with anyone else who served on a, in, a, in a vessel even remotely like that. You, you went through a system that, uh, kind of militaristic system, in fact, that, uh, you know, binds you together, fortunately in my case, with people who cook much better than I ever did. Hi, Anthony. Um, you talked about your frustration with him being written out, and I know you. there was other people, Martha Stewart, Mara Batali, and uh, Wolfgang Puck. Did any of them share that frustration that you had with, with how he was not really present in some of the writing? And well, I, I think everybody's aware of it. Uh, I think, uh, look, uh, there's a, an instinct why... Jeremiah wasn't around. Why? Why be a pain in the ass? Why not just, you know, uh, someone says I think it was uh, Jonathan Waxman, who certainly knew the story, but I think his feeling was like it, there was a general feeling among chefs. It was like, why, Jeremiah, just shut up, you know, put it behind you. Don't be angry about it. We we don't want to hear about it anymore. It's a, it makes things uncomfortable. It's a small pond, surprisingly small pond that chefs of a certain level move in. Um, and he became inconvenient because everybody knew the, the you know, if he shows up at a party, everybody's reminded, oh, geez, now we have to, you know, we have to acknowledge that maybe this story is bullshit. Um, I don't think any of the chefs were angry. There were a few, Regina Schrambling was angry, the, uh, the, the food writer, and I, that's something that I really respect her for all the time. You regularly on Twitter remind people over the years, you know, where's JT in this story? If we're pushing food forward in an evolutional fashion, who do you think is carrying that torch and changing things in a positive fashion? Um, I don't know. I think I, I'm, I've been really impressed and hopeful when I see uh, second generation uh, Korean Americans, uh, Filipino Americans, Mexican Americans who are, who are redefining what American food is so that we don't use the word like really ethnic food. It, it's becoming an incre or an, 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 and who are making the word authentic sort of meaningless too. I mean, Roy Choi being an early example uh, or Angela at uh, Mission Chinese uh, lately, people who, you know, maybe grew up in a Korean American or a Filipino home, but grew up eating hamburgers and tacos, and you know, uh, and, and for them, American food, uh, and for all of us soon, I think, means food made by whoever happens to be cooking in America now. Um, you know, to your point. What Jeremiah did to a great extent is, you know, when Jeremiah went out in the dining room and people wanted to see him, okay, it, maybe it's because he was glamorous, he was hot, he was fuckable. It doesn't matter. The fact that when he moved out into the dining room, it, it was part of a power shift. So now when we talk about food, we don't just talk about food. We talk about who is cooking your food, whether it's a rice farmer in Vietnam or uh, a kid who grew up in, uh, you know, K-Town in L.A., but, 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 deci but decided he wanted to mix it up with, with uh, Mexican and Chicano food. Uh, who's cooking? 
why are they cooking what they're cooking? What do they think they're good at? And uh, why, should, why should we not listen to them when they tell us what they do well? That's, that's a great improvement in the world of food when all of those things, you know, one of the criticisms I get on the show a lot is, you know, you stick to food, man, you know, don't talk about politics. Well, there's nothing more political than food. So the extent to which we can expand that discussion, um, I think has been a good thing, however we might have gotten there. Uh, what advice would you give an aspiring chef? Look, the best advice uh, I've ever gotten as a, as a, as a cook, uh, and the best advice, it, it, it's held me in good stead in every industry I've been in, show up on time. Show up on time. You know, I made all my basic decisions about whether I'm going to invest. I mean, it's a mentoring business. Uh, a chef who suffered mightily over the years to learn how to do his or her profession, uh, who doesn't have time to train, uh, to mentor, but, but finds the time and invests that time in you because they see something in you. Maybe it's just a good resume, somebody recommended you. Show them the respect of showing up on time every day. Make allowances for late train. Show up on time. Show that you're the sort of person, skills can be taught, character, you either got or you don't. And that's what I was always looking for. You know, you may not be the most talented cook in the world, but are you the sort of person who's gonna reliably show the respect to me who I don't have time and, and the cooks around you, the people you work with, whether in any industry, do you have the respect to your for your coworkers to show up when you said you were going to show up. Establish that and everything else falls in a line. Some very sound advice. Well, guys, check out Jeremiah Tower, The Last Magnificent on iTunes. Order it right now and uh, tell your friends about it, social media, Facebook, all that. And thank you guys so much for being here. Yeah, Lydia and Anthony, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me.